0: We find people that basically can't make enough uh, to, to to eat before they
1: go
2: into the fields. I don't believe that. I think that you're looking at other places that are not Central Romana.
1: People actually who focus on and go like getting an orgasm, never get one. Pull up your
3: socks and figure out what you're going to do. <laughs> Any chance will ever get to be a completely red rooms? Oh yeah. And for the future, it's always uncertain.
2: Wherever but more know. uncertain now listen blue ivy is six years old b i
1: say she tried to outbid me on a painting everybody She's in atlanta five, right now at the louis vuitton store if you three, black don't go to louis vuitton today that's why you need to take a meeting with kanye west Bernard Arno. hello and welcome to grubstakers the podcast on billionaires uh my name is yogi paywall and i'm joined by my wonderful co-hosts sean p mccarthy steve Jeffers. And today, we are covering Malvinder Mohan Singh and his brother Shivinder Mohan Singh, the grandchildren to the Patriarch of Generic Medicine in India by Mohan Singh. Uh, We will cover how their family got into the business, how they were able to dupe the FDA into allowing them to make junk medicine for Africans with AIDS, and how the scandal led the Singh brothers ending up in jail. Uh, For this episode, my main source was a book titled... A bottle of lies: The Inside Story of the Generic Drug Boom by Catherine Ebon. I was able to read most of this book for the episode. It details the scandal at Ranbaxy uh, and how the FDA deals with generic pharmaceutical companies and uh, the entire scandal that went down between Daiichi, Rambaxi, and the FDA. Um, before we uh, begin and go into the buyer, I want to ask you guys: What do you what do you two know about the generic medications? You guys fuck with generic medications?
0: Uh, I've I've fucked with them in the past,
1: <laughs> certainly. Wait, what about you,
3: Sean? Uh, yeah, I was on generic Paxil for a minute. Um, you know, it it actually it's just as good as the um the on label brands at taking away your ability to sustain an erection. So <laughs> <laughs> there's there's they not make, a quality sure issue. That- yes, <laughs> they're like, okay, it doesn't cure the other stuff, but you can never get hard again.
1: Right. Right. You know, I remember when I would go to India, my cousin once, like, had a... They want
3: you to be VolSel. The medication is uh, part of the VolSel advocacy project in the United States. Right,
1: of course. (laughs) Uh, I remember once when I went to India, my my cousin had a headache, and he was asking uh, me he was asking my mom for like an Advil and she like joking was like oh why don't you take you know one of the ones that they make here and he was like it just doesn't work the same and I feel like with uh, generic pharmaceuticals we all kind of know that sometimes they're not as good as name brand but we don't really know why I certainly was not aware as to the level of uh, forgery that occurs with generics and it's uh, certainly not the case with all of them but the uh, notion that generic pharmaceuticals are cheaper is not because the ingredients may be different, but the practices in producing them and getting them to our shelves is one that allows them to
0: be more competitive in the American market. I'm looking at some statistics from the site Statista on brand and generic prescription medication revenue from 2006 to 2019. Mm -hmm. And every year it looks like Generic medication revenue, revenue from producing generic medication, either branded or unbranded, went steadily increased from about uh, $55 billion or so in 2006, all the way up to a little over $100 it last year. Oh, wow. Into, in 2019. And likewise, branded medications also increased uh, by a larger percentage, but still. Of course. Hmm. So, it's it's a really important segment of the market for the world. Well,
3: it is interesting, because I believe this is only our second episode looking at the generic pharmaceuticals market. Mm-hmm. Um, the first one we did was Barry and Honey Sherman, That's which, right. if you remember, uh, those were two pharma- generic pharmaceutical billionaires who were brutally murdered <laughs> in their own homes. Mm-hmm. And then the subjects of uh, this generic pharmaceutical billionaire episode are the Singh brothers who are currently in prison. So it's just like, (laughs) I don't know what it is about this industry, but it does seem like there is a very dark underbelly to the generic pharmaceutical industry.
0: That's one of the... Those are like some of the side effects they, they warn you about <laughs> in in the advertisement for being a CEO of a pharmaceutical mm-hmm. company. <laughs> right. That includes sudden death, right, actually. Right, right. <laughs>
3: they get like the, the very fast talking announcer to like, uh, may cause you to be murder suicided in your own home and uh, have it faked as if it was a suicide.
0: <laughs> Talk to your doctor if you see shadows stalking you on your way home or other hallucinations.
3: May cause your surveillance camera system to be disabled, and you are murdered by Agent 47.
1: <laughs> um, you know, we actually did get a uh, informant on the Honey and Barry Sherman uh, episode, and uh, let me put it this way. I have uh, listened to our informant's details on what happened to Honey and Barry Sherman, and uh, at the uh, end of this episode I will uh, do a little addendum explaining everything that occurred with them. But basically the what our informant says is his murder was not due to the pharmaceutical industry but by something slightly more sinister. But I'll cover that at the end of this episode. Hmm. From reading this book what I've learned is that like, you know, the concept of medicine being snake oil is not that old of a concept. Like... The FDA in the United States and uh, other regulatory agencies around the world making sure medicine that you put in your body will work is a relatively new concept. Like anytime I've seen people like be fucking pissed off about the mask regulations, and like people are like, "What? Wear a mask? Everyone's a fucking sheep." And it's like, we weren't wearing shoes 400 years ago. Like, what, what are you talking about? Like, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Everyone's gonna do things that make them feel safer. And in terms of medicine being something that will cure what you're dealing with instead of kill you or you know make you drunk or put you in jail, that's relatively new in terms of the grand scale of medicine."
3: Well, I would like to update the listeners because, you know, they've heard me start on this Epstein bender and then go completely down the JFK, <laughs> RFK assassination rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. And I would like to update them on my progress towards total insanity and disconnection from mainstream society. I've started listening to like these YouTube videos with RFK Jr. is uh, one of RFK's surviving sons. Right. Um, He comes off very smart, but uh, he's also, like, an anti-vaxxer or, like, a safe vaccine guy. Sure. Uh, And then he's also an anti-water fluoridation guy. And it's just, like, (laughs) the thing is, I don't know enough about these subjects, so I'll just watch hours and hours (laughs) of him. And... But it's, like... The, his basic argument is correct, which is the pharmaceutical industry in this country spends more on lobbying and advertising than any other mm-hmm. industry. They spend more than oil and gas. They are far more powerful in the United States than oil and gas are, which are very powerful interests. So they do all that. They absolutely control the regulatory bodies. They control you know, the media. They control the politicians. So you know like that part of the argument is sound and then you just listen to this guy and you know he sounds like he knows what he's talking about i don't know the science and then you're just like to keep the needle away from my child they have (laughs) they have immunity against damages they can you know just pump chemicals in your kid and get away with it
0: does rfk jr conspiracy about his dad
3: He only just got into it, like, he got into it, I think, in 2013, because he read the same book I read, JFK and the Unspeakable. And then he, like, finally visited Daily Plaza, like, after 2013 for the first time in his life. And since then, he's been on a JFK and RFK were killed by the CIA binge, which I do respect that he's, to my knowledge, the only Kennedy who will publicly say that. Which you know, okay. if, you, if if you had family murdered by the CIA, I think you do owe them a responsibility to say that.
0: Yeah, so they have like a silent family dinner, and then he's just like, I guess I'll just go and say it. <laughs> <laughs> My dad and also JFK were assassinated. There's no magic bullet. I'm sorry. Right. Anyway, pass the mashed potatoes. <laughs>
3: It's like you can hear like a uh, a wind blowing against the window from the direction of the grassy knoll, and that's the ghost of JFK haunting their family dinners.
1: Sean, how many hours of RFK do you think you've watched now?
3: Like five or six hours, probably. <laughs> and I, I bought his audio book. He wrote a book about uh, his own family, uh, about the Kennedys. Right. So I'm like I'm like three hours deep into his audio book. Oh man. Um, yeah, I hope he runs for president i
1: love i love
0: (laughs)
3: let's see if the cia can go three for three from the
0: field they need to rebuild after joe kennedy jr yes (laughs) rebuilding year.
1: that
3: Mm -hmm. sean gotta get the farm system shaken out
1: radicalization is happening before our very eyes just fucking six months after he's like yeah you know what guys uh i'm gonna change my last name to kennedy i think it's the only way i can get this done and guess what? I'm uh, I'm going
3: to visit the locations and I'm going to tell you the truth. I do like that. I'm just fully back to being an idpole Irishman <laughs> <Just> <laughs> supporting the fucking Irish political dynasty. Like I'm a fucking bought and paid for fresh off the boat patty in Boston shortly after the Civil War.
1: There's like viral videos of you in grocery stores like picking up Lucky Charms boxes uh, being like this is appropriation. Why does nobody see this? How come nobody can understand this is causing me pain?
3: wait, to Steve's earlier point, uh, when the Kennedys, when the Kennedys have a rebuilding year and they have to rebuild their farm season, what they do is they go out and have a bunch of illegitimate children. <laughs> and that's, <laughs> that's a rebuilding year for the Kennedys is they're establishing the next the next line of uh, political office holders.
0: Do They have like a camp for the kids? A, <laughs> they have like a trainer. It helps them learn how to do War crimes later.
1: <laughs> this, is, this is Sean at a McDonald's. Uh, hey, you want fries with that? Oh, what? Just because I'm Irish, you think I want potatoes with my burger? No. I want potatoes regular. None of this fried nonsense. I am a purist.
3: Yeah, I go I go around St. Patrick's Day, they're like, Do you want a shamrock shake? What the fuck did you just <laughs> say to me? <laughs> what the get your manager out here right now.
0: Just just virulently anti Protestant. Right, right.
1: <laughs> Moving back to the Singh family, this family fucking sucks. I mean, you know, people that are in medicine should have the decency to think, I want to heal people instead of kill them with my medicine. But the Rand Baxi Company and Mulvinder and uh, Shervinder Singh, don't give a fuck about that. They are born in a family with silver spoons up their asses. They're the grandchildren of a pharmaceutical empire, and they run it into the ground because of their hubris and ego. And it's it's disgusting in chasing money and elite status they chose to poison people instead of maintain regulations to heal them it's fucking sick i mean you don't see us doing episodes of our show where it's just toilet noises for fucking two hours and us being like no this is a really good podcast we're at least trying to make the world a slightly better place with our content
3: hmm. But if we lose another 100 patrons, we will do that. <laughs> I'm going to live stream me taking a shit. <laughs> <laughs> the Patreon count goes back up immediately. It's are giving the people what they want. <laughs> it slowly turns from
1: a fucking billionaire show to just me fucking taking shit and popping pimples and shit in the bathroom. <laughs>
3: All right. We should note for the listeners that the Singh brothers are not to be confused with the uh, professional wrestling duo, (laughs) the Singh brothers. Uh, You know, two of them are uh, pharmaceutical billionaires who are in prison and the other two are racist stereotypes (laughs) thought up by Vince McMahon (laughs) to uh, give people a chance to boo Indian people uh for you know taking their call center jobs or whatever WWE fans are mad about
1: <laughs> when you mentioned it i didn't know what you were talking about and so i, I had to look up them wrestlers and at, at first i was like man what the fuck is this and then slowly i was like well representation does matter i mean i'm not saying i'm happy but to see cut indian men in in american media that aren't being portrayed as as uh weaklings does make me feel slightly good <laughs> it's not another aziz clone at least these guys are fucking cut
3: it's just like in the wwe if you see a wrestler who is uh not white you can set your watch to them being a horrific (laughs) racial stereotype (laughs) and we have vince mcmahon's uh, creative direction to thank for that yeah he's like uh involved in the trump campaign in some way isn't he yeah, his wife is Commerce Secretary. Oh, um, she was running for Senate.
1: Boy, what a fucking shitty country. All right, mm. uh, continuing on with the bio of the Singh family, we open with the original patriarch. Uh, by Mohan Singh, he was born in India December 30th, 1917. He would begin by his joining his family's construction business that got the contract to build the roads in the northeast of India during World War II. Although he is considered by some to be doyen of pharmaceutical industry in India, he didn't start Ranbaxi. It was actually started by his cousins Ranjit Singh and Gurbax Singh. Ranbaxi is a fusion of those two names. So Ran from Ranjit and Box from Gurbax, Which is so interesting because Ranbaxi sounds like some fucking European nonsense, if you know what I mean. Like when I f- first saw it, I was like, why, why, why is this stupid name? But then I realized it was just a uh, anagram
0: of both their names. Sort of like GlaxoSmithKline. Yeah, yeah, definitely. This is fucking.
3: I will say it is a good pharmaceutical company name. It would buy. I would, yeah,
0: buy, I would
2: buy
3: watered down HIV drugs from them. <laughs> <laughs> I would. I would see the name and I'd be like, "These people sound like a, any other pharmaceutical company. This is probably reliable." And then I would die when my T cell count collapsed.
1: Yeah. Originally, they would distribute drugs for for A. Shinogi, a Japanese pharmaceutical company making vitamins and anti-tuberculosis drugs. Uh, When Rambaxi would default on their original loan, uh, Bai Mohan Singh would then buy the company on August 1st, 1953 for 2.5 lakh rupees. Bhai Mohan Singh would uh, do a handful of predatory things to expand his empire. At one point they were buying pharmaceuticals from La Petite Spa, an Italian pharmaceutical company. Bhai Mohan Singh would convince his allies to besmirch the name of La Petite Spa, the Italian pharma company, and then once they went under he would buy them at a cheap price. Although these things would certainly help build the empire, he would make his mark once he started making drugs himself. He would launch compros. This would be an imitation of Roche Pharmaceuticals Valium. So the reason he was able to do this was because Roche had no patent to the drug in India. And this was his first big score, making Valium in India because they had no patent in India. By the 1970s, by Mohan realized he could reverse engineer any drug and would set up an R&D facility in Mahili, India, and would make drugs such as Rosalind, Sifron, and many more.
3: Uh, to recap what you just said, just to explain to me. So this guy, their grandfather, he was originally making his money building roads during World War II. And then he used that money to go on like a slander campaign against some pharma companies and then bought them out of bankruptcy. Is that accurate?
1: Kind of. Uh, That's mostly accurate. At first, he buys a pharmaceutical company that his cousin started that's just uh, selling drugs that they're buying from this Japanese company. And then later on, I mean, so basically, if Ranjit and uh, Girlbox, the original founders of Ranbaxy, running it... they would have probably not thought, hey, let's fucking run companies into the ground and then buy them to sell medicine to people in India. But hmm. by Mohan Singh was like, fuck that noise, I'm going to fucking, I'm going to build my empire here. And at first would railroad companies and then buy them for the cheap, but then later on realize that he could just reverse engineer the drugs and then make them himself.
3: And just hmm. like, so if their grandfather was building roads during World War II, that means he was like close to the British Empire, right? kind of a collaborator.
1: Yeah, you can definitely say that his family collaborated with the British. Uh, during World War ii the British were, was using India as a hub to like refuel fighter jets among a handful of other things. So there was a lot of money to be made uh, for Indian entrepreneurs from the British. And building roads in the northeast was huge money for them. Later on we're gonna be talking about uh a guru that would basically rob the grandchildren of this guy by the name of Gurinder Singh Dylan, who is an uncle of these guys. And uh, that guy also, his family is in the construction business and he like did that in Spain, but then now is a spiritual guru that 500,000 Indian people uh, think he's a god. So uh, all of the people in this story are related to money in in the worst possible ways. Hmm. So by 73... Parvinder, the father of the two billionaires we're talking today, would join Ranbaxi and move up the company. From the book, it would describe how the eldest Parvinder would receive all of the Ranbaxi shares. Manjit, the middle son, got an agrochemical company and some luxury properties. Aniljeet, the youngest, inherited Max India, a chemicals company whose biggest customer was Ranbaxi. Because Rambaxi was the largest of the three companies, the two younger brothers inherited additional funds. Continuing on from the book, uh, Manjeet and Anujit would grow bitter and believe that they had been shortchanged due to this deal. And this is indicative of the family drama in the same family. I mean, all three of these kids are being given Massive companies just for being the kids of Bai Mohan Singh, and they're already pissed off that fucking Parvinder is getting to run Randbaxi by himself. So later on in Parvinder's time at Randbaxi, he would butt heads with his father Bai Mohan Singh. Uh, from the book, once again, Bai Mohan began waging a battle against Parvinder. He accused Parvinder of violating the family settlement agreement by blocking his veto power over company matters. Their conflict was was not just over the internal exercise of power, but rather over two different visions, one old and one new of India. Now, this would happen in the mid-80s, and what is occurring here is that the FDA regulation on producing generics would change, and instead of the previous... Uh, model where you would have to like go through a a litany of tests to get your generics to the market the FDA would make it so that if you were to file your paperwork first you could get in the door and you would have a uh, six-month leeway to produce your generic before anyone else could and from my research, I think Parvinder saw this and went, let's start fucking making every drug we can. Who gives a fuck about regulations? Let's just go. Guns a-blazing.
3: Yeah, and it should just be noted. I mean, obviously, I think our American listeners are aware, but, you know, the American pharma market is the mother load mm-hmm. in terms of money. Mm. So if you can get a generic drug in there that undercuts the price of your competitors or that undercuts the price of the labeled drug, like, you're, you're fucking rich right. just off one of them especially if you're the only one on the market for like six months.
1: By the late 90s, Parvinder Singh and the board of directors would be like, we're doing this, we don't care. So Bai Mohan Singh would then leave the company, and then he would die in 2006. Uh, From the book, Bai Mohan was so pissed off at Parvinder, he was like, I'm not even going to go to your funeral. Uh, Unfortunately, Parvinder Singh would have cancer and die in 1999. By Mohan would be so torn up that he would organize the funeral himself and and and, and make it, it a lavish affair.
3: So this is the father and the son.
1: This, Am I wrong? That? This is the father and the son, and the the son dies. So Parvinder, yeah, who runs okay. Ranbaxy, he dies uh, in ninety nine due to cancer, and at this time you know by mohan singh says all right th- you know fucking my son's dead but his grandchildren should be running Ranbaxi. and so the older son malvinder is who by mohan singh says hey he should be in charge but parvinder before he would die would be like no they're not ready they're in their early 30s they suck and he would bring on this other individual ds Barr, who would come in to deal with who'd come in to be the ceo of Rambaxi at this time this would be the late 90s and early 2000s when D.S. Barr would be at Rambaxy, And this would be one of the largest times in their history because it'd be when Bill Clinton would decide to meet with them and uh, open a couple of doors that were previously closed.
3: I just want to say this parvender seems like a smart guy. I mean, he recognizes this uh, huge market opportunity with the FDA, and he also recognizes that his own two sons are dipshits and capable <laughs> of running a company. And that that takes a high degree of perception to see that in your own children. Let's chip off the old block. <laughs>
1: From the book, it talks about how Parvinder was exceedingly intelligent, that, like, in college, he spent 10 to 12 hours in the laboratory uh, learning his craft and making sure to be an excellent student. Apparently, the dean would send a letter to Bai Mohan Singh, his father, saying that a student like this only comes once every decade or so. So Parvinder Singh, I think, genuinely was exceedingly intelligent and cognizant of both the business mindset and... And the uh, chemistry mindset to truly run a, a, a pharmaceutical company, whereas Malvinder and Shivinder would only have the aggressive MBA American spirit of expanding and trying to make dollar dollar bills, if you know what I mean.
0: <laughs> hmm. And as we'll see later, uh, partially failing if not completely failing at that too.
1: I think going to jail for the business you do is completely failing. I think that's (laughs) relatively fair to say. (laughs) So at this time, we are at the early 2000s, and there is a crisis in the world that is not being solved by big pharma, and that crisis is the AIDS epidemic. And who, who would you guess but the first black president of the United States decides, I got a solution to this problem. That man is William Clinton. Sean, you want to take it away?
3: Yeah, so around two thousand two, two thousand three, the uh, Clinton Global Health Initiative, the uh, the Clinton Foundation gets involved um, with the uh, Raxbury Pharmaceuticals, and you know there's been a lot of reporting about the Clinton Foundation and how they're taking they were taking all this money from you know Gulf states and other kind of shady people who are obviously trying to influence uh, Hillary Clinton, who they thought would be the next president. But, like, the story with Raxberry and them is, as Yogi mentioned, they were trying to— the Clinton Health Initiative was trying to get generic HIV-AIDS medications into sub-Saharan Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, and Raxberry, under the leadership of our two subjects, uh, Mulvinder and Shivinder, uh, started watering down a lot of their generics— including their HIV AIDS medication. But this is this kind of allegation is a little controversial because when Hillary Clinton was running for president in 2016, uh, conservative media dug this up again. Uh, And uh, then Congresswoman from Tennessee, Marsha Blackburn, she's now the Senator from Tennessee. Uh, She has her own, you know, kind of corruption with opiate pharmaceuticals. But when she was in Congress, she wrote a report on this in 2016, a September, 2016 report, um, Her website summarized the report's key findings, uh, which is, the Clinton Foundation likely facilitated the distribution of watered-down HIV-AIDS medications in sub-Saharan Africa. The distribution of watered-down HIV-AIDS medications may have increased patient mortality rate. Mm -hmm. Uh, They can't directly tie it to it, but it seems very likely. Yeah. uh, the watered-down HIV-AIDS medications were purchased with taxpayer money as a result of price agreements, some of which were likely negotiated by the Clinton Foundation. Um, and, uh, quote, President Clinton was personally enriched with million-dollar consulting contracts by a friend of convicted felon and, Rax- and ran and advocate, Rajat Gupta, from 2002 to 2008. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the point here is... Basically, they these guys were giving, you know, Bill Clinton multi-million dollar consulting and other contracts. And the Clinton Global Initiative was using them and steering, you know, taxpayer money, foundation money, and um, UN money towards their particular generic drugs. And I do like—it um, also notes— that President Clinton praised uh, Ranbaxy's AIDS fighting efforts to an audience of 600 businessmen in Mumbai, India uh, in 2013. (laughs) And so this was after um, they uh, pled guilty to seven felonies in 2013. Uh, They admitted lying to multiple federal health care agencies and they were fined $500 million. It might have been before, but it was the same year is when Bill Clinton decides to go to India and praise their AIDS-fighting efforts.
1: To continue on what Sean's saying, and quote from the book, Bottle of Lies, uh, at one point, uh, the first whistleblower to let the FDA know about Rambaxi, Thakur would learn about this. He would talk to a higher-up who would say, Arun went to a whiteboard and drew a diagram by region of the liability that Rambaxi faced. The United States and Canada on the bottom, Europe next, Latin America above that, India Next, and R.O.W., rest of the world, comprising the poorest African nations on top. I'd start there, Arun said, pointing to the top. Thacker still felt that he was groping in the dark. He needed numbers. Arun called in his assistant to help. Thacker asked the young man what percentage of the dossier submitted to regulators contained data that did not match what the company had on file. The assistant was evasive. It varies region from region. Moving forward here... In the U.S., the number was between 50 and 60%. In Europe, it would be the same. And in India and the rest of the world, it was 100%. So that means the numbers that they gave to regulators uh, in terms of the medicine being distributed in India and the rest of the world were all fraudulent. Um, Continuing on with a few more quotes from the book here. The company manipulated almost every aspect of its manufacturing process to quickly produce impressive-looking data that would bolster its bottom line. Continuing on, they altered test parameters so that formulations with higher impurities could be approved. They faked dissolution studies to general optimal results. They crushed up brand-name drugs into capsules so that they could be tested in lieu of the company's own drugs. They superimposed brand-name test results onto their own in applications. For some markets, the company fraudulently mixed and matched data streams, taking its best data from manufacturing in one market and presenting it to regulators elsewhere, or elsewhere as data unique to the drugs in their markets. For other markets, the company simply invented data. I got two more quotes here, and then, then I'll, I'll throw it back to you, Sean. Because Rambaxi was fixated on results, regulations and requirements were viewed with indifference. Good manufacturing practices were stop signs and inconvenient detours, so Ranbaxy was driving any way it chose to arrive at favorable results, then moving around road signs, rerating traffic lights, and adjusting mileage after the fact. In short, Rambaxi had almost no method for confirming the content of drugs in those markets. For example, the data collected by Thocker's team showed that of the 163 drug products approved in Brazil since 2000, almost all had been filed with phony batch records and stability data that did not exist. Now this last part here is the most gross. At one point... This is uh, another woman that comes in, Kathy Spreen, who also became a whistleblower later on. At one point, she confronted Mulvinder Singh, then president of pharmaceuticals, with her suspicions. He told her to be patient and assured her that everything would work out. But for that to happen, the company would have needed to care about the compliance and feel a sense of urgency about protecting patients. This continues on. Spreen expressed her fears about the quality of the AIDS medicine that Ranbaxy was supplying Mm -hmm. for Africa. One of the company's top medical executives responded, Who cares? It's just blacks dying. Jesus Christ. So, when I say that Malvinder and Shivinder Singh are uh, pieces of shit that knew their company was uh, falsifying reports to sell drugs to the world and were trying to claim that they knew nothing about it, no, no. These leeches were exceedingly aware of the fact that the drugs that they were making at their factories were were not to quality standards and they were doing it for profit.
3: You know, it should be noted. I, I do like um I found a, a write up of this controversy by the Heartland Institute, mm-hmm. which um some listeners might know is a global warming denial fossil fuel <laughs> think tank. And I, I do want to give a minor digression because I found this so funny. The Heartland Institute in 2012 put up billboards with photos of the Unabomber along highways <laughs> in Illinois, <laughs> photos of the Unabomber with the caption, quote, I still believe in global warming, do you? <laughs> <laughs> they had to take these down, yeah. but they, they actually <laughs> had planned out a campaign to put up uh, uh, billboards with the same caption, I still believe in global warming, To you, alongside billboards with pictures of charles manson fidel castro and osama bin laden oh, wow and they actually they refused to apologize uh for this um even though they took him down they justified it saying quote the most prominent advocates of global warming aren't scientists they are murderers tyrants and madmen <laughs> And you know, so of course they like they don't disclose their donors. They're heavily funded by ExxonMobil, right, among others, course. as of the last time they disclosed their donors. But you know, of course they hate Clinton, so they're gonna write accurate things about the Clintons sometimes. Um but back from the tangent, uh they do actually for this uh Heartland Institute write up, they interview an expert uh who says During the time frame in question, the early 2000s, HIV medications were extremely expensive in the United States. Had I been focused on HIV, I would have gone to India to find my medication supply for my patients in Africa. So there's nothing inherently bad about what they were doing, going to India, getting generics. But it's just kind of the problem is when you have Bill Clinton, you know, Getting multi-million-dollar consulting contracts from um, uh, this Rand Baxi, a friend of the Rand Baxi advocate Rajat Gupta, from 2002 to 2008, very clearly Rand Baxi was lobbying the Clintons, donating money to the Clinton Foundation, donating, you know, putting money in the Clintons' pockets throughout various degrees, and even in like <clears throat> in 2008, apparently the Clinton Foundation had to uh, distance themselves. Uh, they in 2008, the Clinton Foundation stopped buying any Ranbaxy drugs itself. It also warned Sub-Saharan African governments and others and Inspire Networks to t- to take out extra steps to confirm the quality of Ranbaxy's products. Uh, you know, and it said, you know, it's up to you if you want to switch, but we recommend doing extra testing if you stick with Ranbaxy. So it's just weird that in 2008, the Clinton administration backs down on this and admits it. But in 2013, Bill Clinton is still flying out to an audience of 600 businessmen in Mumbai, India. Uh, presumably, he got paid a, a fair, fair amount of money to I mean, go he, out.
1: Yeah. No, no, one, no one at his caliber doesn't get paid to fly to a third world country. Come on now.
3: Right. In 2013, five years after his foundation admits, like, hey, we fucked up, he's going, you know, Rambaxi is doing great stuff, <laughs> fighting, fighting AIDS and all those women I gave AIDS to by raping them. Who wants to hear me play the saxophone? And then, like, last thing I'll note on this is because this was a controversy in the 2016 election, um, PolitiFact uh, wrote up about kind of because the daily caller and some other conservative outlets leveled these accusations against the clintons uh, politifact showed once again how useless fact-checking organizations are uh, because they they labeled this claim false but it's really worth reading their article on why they labeled it false <laughs> and I'll, I'll give you this summarized version basically so They labeled it false because in 2008, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration issued a warning against Rambaxi. However, the FDA's main complaint at the time was that the company had falsified test results on the stability of a handful of drugs none of which were the HIV-AIDS drugs. They blocked 30 drugs at the U.S. borders, including HIV-AIDS drugs, but basically at this time the FDA did not accuse them of falsifying HIV-AIDS drugs. Then in 2013, the U.S. Justice Department charged Ranbaxi, but none of the counts involved HIV-AIDS drugs. I believe this was an epilepsy and acne medication mm-hmm. that they'd been sent into the market. So they used that to say that because these U.S. government agencies never specifically called out the HIV-AIDS drugs, it is false to say that the Clinton Foundation and the Clintons made money selling watered-down drugs, HIV-AIDS drugs, to Africa. But then they actually got a correction on this from the Daily Caller, but they wouldn't walk it back, but they did include this note. In 2004, the World Health Organization... Uh, had been testing Ranbaxy products. That year, 2004, World Health Organization inspectors found problems with Ranbaxy's drugs and decertified three of its HIV-AIDS medications. So that's not even true, PolitiFact's original claim. So here's how they revised their claim. I'm quoting from PolitiFact now. Put put simply, since 2005, no regulator has found its HIV-AIDS drugs defective or issued a recall of its products. Since 2005, the wow. Clinton administration was working with them from 2002 to 2005. So they're acknowledging a minimum three years in right. which the Clinton Foundation was pumping faulty HIV-AIDS drugs that were absolutely getting people killed and, you know, making good money for former President Clinton by doing it.
1: To go back for a moment here, at one point an executive would show a PowerPoint that Thakur, the whistleblower, had prepared. It was entitled "Risk Management for ANDA Portfolio." This would be referred to as the R and R memo that the FDA would later use to shut down Rambaxi. Quoting from the book once again, Rambaxi had lied regulators, falsified data, and endangered patient safety in almost every country where it sold drugs. More than two hundred products in more than forty countries had elements of data that were fabricated to support business needs. The PowerPoint stated business needs. The report showed was a euphemism for ways in which Ranbaxy could minimize cost, maximize profit, and dupe regulators into approving substandard drugs. At the end of this presentation, the room was silent, and then one of the board members would turn and ask the CEO at the time, can you not bury the data? (laughs) Nobody responded. And then, at the time, Tempest would then ask for every copy of the PowerPoint to be destroyed and for the laptop on which it was created to be broken down piece by piece. No minutes of the meeting had been created. <laughs> they would eventually find that Thacker was the one that put this together. And so, they, to retaliate, the company would accuse Thacker of browsing porn sites from his office computer. Thacker vehemently denied doing so. Furious, he got his network administrator to pour through the computer records, had found that someone in the corporate IT department had logged into his division servers and planted his IP address <laughs> on several searches. <surgeons. laughs> Listen, look. I'm not against anyone watching porn while they're at work, but to use it as slander, how dare you? Piss well, poor. Well, it's like,
0: it's like, I mean, he could have been like, I didn't do it, but even if I did you all fucking falsified <laughs> scientific data for an <laughs> FDA approval. So, I mean, you could be the most disgusting, depraved person at work, but if you point that out, it sort of makes it okay, right?
3: Yeah, but but like, how great would it be to be the guy who watches porn at work when your boss needs you to frame somebody for watching porn at work? You're like, could you, could you get some porn on this guy's computer? Like some really depraved shit. <laughs> like, you're the expert here now. <laughs>
0: Finally. I never
3: felt it's competent in shine. my day job until that, they asked me to
0: put porn on this guy's computer. The promotion suddenly seems much more feasible now.
1: <laughs> you know, the the book continues on in describing uh, Malvinder and Shivinder uh, to to just give you a look at these fucking pieces of shit, um, inside Rambaxy, some viewed him as petulant and immature. He was preoccupied with his own ranking on the Forbes list of India's 40 richest people. He and his brother Shivinder, with $1.6 billion in assets combined, had fallen from 10th in 2004 to 19th in 2005. This year was shaping up to be even worse when Malvinder seemed to blame on a on a lack of employee loyalty. When told that division wasn't making its number, he would yell at employees, "I want profit!" <laughs> <laughs> just just the level of fucking douchebaggery that when your company's not doing good enough, you yell, "I want profit!" But in hmm. more more sinister deeds, uh, Malvinder's brother Shivinder, at one point, uh, you know, basically. They were kind of blindsided at the fact that they couldn't use the threat of force or strategic payments to get problems solved. At one point, Shivinder would block a high-profile cardiac surgeon who opposed him in a business deal from re-entering a New Delhi hospital the Singh family owned. The surgeon arrived at work to encounter almost 100 policemen... And a full battalion of rapid action force servicemen, armed with tear gas and a water tanker, used for riot patrols. So, mm. if you cross the fucking Singh family, they have the cops on retainer, and they're just gonna send an assload of them to fuck you up. And you know, in terms of Thacker, the whistleblower, when he you know moves from the U.S., specifically uh, Princeton, New Jersey, to India to work at Randecksi, he at one point is with a drive he's with his driver and he sees that there's traffic up ahead and it's somebody got hit by a car and so he decides to force the, his driver to pull over to the side of the road so that they can carry this guy to the hospital and when he gets to the hospital he pays for the guy's medical bills which the driver's like dude we shouldn't be doing this we should get out and Tucker is like no man i got a fucking duty to treat people right the next day the police would come to Ranbaxi and accuse Thakur of hitting the guy that had been on the ground because he paid for his medical bills. So, the uh, Ranbaxi HR would take care of that police uh, scandal, but, like, it's dirty to be a fucking businessman in India. And in the case of Ranbaxi, they are riddled with just fucking family feuds and uh, co- corruption. So,. At this time, the FDA is looking at Ram Banksy and trying to uh, build their case on all of this corruption that we're we're talking about. At first, Thacker like sends them like broken English emails that they don't really respond to, and then at one point he's like, "I right, fuck it, I might get murder over this, but I gotta I gotta speak out on this." And the FDA starts working with him. Hmm. Around the time that the FDA finally starts putting their case together a Japanese company called Daichi is looking to expand and potentially uh, work with RainBaxi. Malvinder Singh would then convince Ube, the CEO of Daichi, to then buy RainBaxi while the FDA was looking at RainBaxi for this corruption that we've been talking about. Daichi would then buy the shares the Singh brothers owned, as was Rain Bixie in total, for $4.2 billion, where the Singh brothers would pull away with $2 billion on that deal. So mm. right before the FDA is going to be like, hey, you guys are fucking bullshit, Dai Cheeks buys the company and they kind of almost get out of it scot-free. Or so they think. I mean, mm. if they didn't buy Dai Qi, they might actually not be in jail right now. I, if they didn't fuck over that, cheat, there's a chance that they would have had to pay a fine, but they wouldn't be incriminated because of it.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I've learned with this podcast and the justice system is like people go down when you fuck another powerful company or mm-hmm. powerful individual. Like if you want to kill some people in sub-Saharan Africa, you can probably get away with that. But, you know, if you want to defraud a extremely powerful Japanese pharmaceutical company, uh, that might have consequences for you.
1: When Ube was, was concerned with the fact that Rand Banksy wasn't uh, giving them information and thought that like uh, things were off, Malvinder would tell uh, Susome Une, people are trying to create confusion, and obviously somebody's trying to bring our price down so that they can buy us at a lower price, he would tell investors. A multinational company and a leading Indian company are working in concert to bring our share price down. Babe... It, I'm not a shitty boyfriend. It's just that all these other boyfriends are making me look bad. Like he, he's literally just like I'm. I'm not shitty. All these other guys are just making me look bad. At one point, Deshmukh, the company's lawyer, would threaten to tell Une about the uh, PowerPoint we discussed a moment ago, and Malvinder would threaten him and say, "I know where you live." And Deshmukh would respond, "Of course you know where I live, you idiot. You've come to my house," <laughs> and. Later on, Deshmukh would threaten that his Shiv Sanna connections won't appreciate this. Uh, the Shiv Sanna is a fearsome right-wing Hindu nationalist party linked to political mm. violence. At that point, Malvinder went, You're a womanizer. I have all the records on you. So this guy's go-to fucking threat is that, like, You
3: love pussy too much. <laughs> 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 um, it's like his secret move. <laughs> His, after he powers up that's his special move <laughs> right 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 so when
1: daichi would buy Ranbaxi, originally the deal would be that malvinder as ceo would stay on for five years but very quickly uh une and daichi would realize oh no this company is fucking bullshit and <laughs> Ma- malvinder would quickly be fired
0: he actually got replaced by a guy who they fired in short order after him. <laughs> it was, like, one of Mulvinder's, uh his, like, senior executive friends. One thing that I learned from the book They were is... all
3: fired for watching porn on their work computers.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One thing I, I learned from the book was that, like, a lot of the people, even after associates were fired, would still be loyal to the Singh family. So I bet that, that the guy that replaced Mulvinder was loyal to the Singh idea. Um... With the $2 billion that Daichi would pay for Randbexie, Malvinder and Sh- uh, Shivender would then
0: take that money
1: and put it into two new companies. Steven, you got more on this?
0: Yeah, so through all of this, Mal- Malvinder and Shivinder, they ended up seeding most of their shares in two companies that they... they uh, they ended up doing a a fraud scheme with uh, Fortis Healthcare and Religar, or is it Religair, Enterprises. And, like, well, these were the two of the biggest ones. Mm -hmm. Um, But they ended up, so they had to kind of retreat out of these companies because Fortis said it had been placed under investigation by um, Indian regulators following allegations the brothers had siphoned off about Five billion rupees, which at the time was about seventy-eight million dollars, right from the company. And so that that wasn't the only thing they were dealing with. So it was following accusations by a shareholder of doing similar things at Religare, mm-hmm. which is a final financial services company. So the FT had some reporting at this, uh, had some running reporting on this this scheme at the time, the allegations. And they reported that the brothers are also kind of, they're also facing a 35 billion rupee payment that they, ha- they were forced by the court to make those related to the sale of Randback, the initial sale in 2008 of Renbaxi. Uh Their bankers have claimed almost all the shares they held in their own companies, which had been used as collateral for loans so they were using they were using the com- the company as collateral for loans for their own personal use
2: right.
0: like without disclosing it to the rest of the board and JN Gupta who was a man who's like big shot managing director at a like a stakeholder advisory company/watchdog slash watchdog, Said, said of them, quote, The brothers had three major companies, Ranbaxy, Fortis, and Religare, and they had left or are leaving all of them. From what we have seen in all three, they never had any intention of running these companies with good governance. Mm-hmm. So it's just like bad faith. Uh, no no corporate governance whatsoever. The brothers came to an international attention when they sold a majority stake in Ranbaxy to Daiichi Sankyo, as we outlined, as we were just talking about, it appeared to be going smoothly, but actually the the story broke out that they had falsified data in FDA approval mm-hmm. meetings to show that their facilities could actually produce safe, accurate, generic versions of drugs that were effective. Right.
1: In uh, 2016, the Singapore Tribunal would ask the Sings to pay Daichi Sankyoko 35 billion rupees after finding that the brothers concealed the information during the sale of the drug maker, Ranbaxy to the firm in 2008, like we just mentioned.
0: Mm-hmm. And so, I guess jumping to over to the case of Fortis, they said they, quote, wanted to enable and power the board to guide the company's future without being hampered by any possible impact from the Daiichi judgment. And so, for Religare, it was... Quote, to protect the interest of the company and the stakeholders, these are the reasons why they said they were stepping away. Right, and it, you know it didn't have anything to do with like like worsening allegations about further frauds that they were committing.
3: Just to clarify, Fortis is like a ho- primarily a hospital chain company in India i think
1: yes fortis is a franchise of hospitals that are in india now and i mean the fact that they're run by these guys that have clearly uh (laughs) they clearly don't care about medicine or helping people Mm -hmm. over profits is fucking lunacy
0: yep so fortis said that the loans were made quote in the normal course of treasury operations and the brothers released a statement saying quote we will not shy away from any and all processes questions questions clarifications that need to be addressed and we will provide all cooperation to ensure that the truth comes forth so they did not do that basically <laughs> right and the company deloitte was its auditor and they refused to sign off on the accounts until the loans to the Singh brothers as like individually that they're getting from using the companies as collateral had been fully accounted for or repaid and the company just said like a they kind of dithered on the question of like if they would do that and ultimately didn't, and the ownership of Fortis and Religer, uh was just sort of in flux for a while. Meanwhile, the share price of Fortis and Religair is just like plummeting, hurting their the brothers' net worth uh, already more than it was, mm-hmm. and yeah. So they basically they were using they were using these uh, smaller but still very large companies as kind of, like, basically their own bank. You get, like, relatively cheap loans by collateralizing some of the assets of the companies for their personal use.
3: You don't understand. We are spending billions of dollars on pornography. (laughs) We believe in supporting sex workers, and I'm not just going to steal by going on one of those free websites.
0: (laughs) Sex work is work. Okay. Mm
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so the siblings would lose much of their corporate empire to debt, as Stephen has mentioned. Another funnel for a large portion of their wealth was their uncle on their mother's side is spiritual guru Gurinder Singh Dillon, who adds the Radha Somi Satsang Bias, one of the most powerful sects in North India. Now, the way I've understood it is that between six to eight hundred million dollars worth of funds were funneled into uh, Gurinder. Let me fucking find this piece of shit's name again. You know, you'd think I'd be good at Indian names, but I, I mean, fucking, <laughs> is too many. Fuck these. <laughs> fuck these turban wearing pieces of shit
0: I'm not gonna <laughs> no leave it in you know what they fucking That's came. what to, the people pay they for came from, <laughs> they came from they came it'll be extra con, extra uh, <laughs> they came content. to
1: India after the fucking partition went up and these fucking Pakistani fucks don't fool me these inbred hicks all right, it'll um, be
3: like it'll be like when Chappelle left the Chappelle Show because he saw a white guy laughing too hard at a racist <laughs> joke. Yogi's gonna make fun of Indians and then see us laughing too hard, and then it'll be like, why haven't there why? been any episodes for three weeks?
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, from what I understand, I think that they were trying to do a offshore shell company thing with Gurinder Singh Dhillon, and the younger brother Shivinder was giving the RSSB group hundreds of millions of dollars to then later uh, get back via not paying taxes on them to the Indian government. But like, you know, if you look at the RSSB, there's a uh, great blog by this individual that left it, who's now got something called Church of the Churchless, preaching the gospel of spiritual independence. And I mean, like, you know, this guy, uh, not really a quack, but you know, He's like one of them white dudes that got into spirituality and then realized that he was literally being raped for his time and money. And so he was like, I'm I'm going to get the fuck out of this. So is RSSB a cult in India and it's taking advantage of the Indian people that are a part of it? Yes. There are a lot of individuals like this. We covered uh, Ramde Baba on this show. Um, and, you know, from what I've observed, they will buy... You know three to seven hours worth of TV time and people will be at home just watching them do yoga and give lectures and similar to like Hugo Chavez will you know like Sean actually watching uh, Robert Kennedy videos at some point will just be like you know what this guy's right I got to give him all my money. In the Ramde Baba episode, we talked about how at first he'd be like, if you do yoga, it's going to cure cancer and everything else. But then later on, the government's like, you can't say that. So he would have people in the audience say that I did your program and it cured all my fucking ailments. So hmm. it's a scam. And in this case, the uncle of this uh, of these two billionaires stole hundreds of millions of dollars from them. And when he's uh, confronted by like, hey, man, you, you have money, right? He says... I am penniless. Money is <laughs> rather swummy chief moment. this tells court like it's, he's like, I don't have any money. I'm just a spiritual guy. So that is how they lost a few billions of dollars. But I want to make it clear that this is not unique to the Indian generic pharmaceutical industry. All of the issues we've talked about in duping the FDA and allowing your impure pharmaceuticals to enter the market that can happen anywhere. In fact, it's happening in this country right now. We, we all know that generic pharmaceuticals are sometimes shittier than name brand. We can't like really put our finger on it, but we kind of have that feeling. And the reason is is because with cheaper oversight, you have cheaper goods. But when it comes to medicine, it should not be this way. In terms of making a product that is supposed to heal people, there, you know... The amount of red tape and regulations are understandable, but the FDA can't take on the load of the world doing this, but they shouldn't have to. Medicine uh, needs to be a part of the global health initiative and universal health care, not only in this country, but around the world. The fact that companies know how to make medicine that won't kill you, but choose not to because it's cheaper or they don't have the intellectual property on it, I mean, fuck off. Like... If I, if we have Mickey Mouse as a logo for Grubstakers, we're going to get sued by Disney, but if we crudely draw it and say this is Mickey Blouse, it's okay. Like, these invisible lines of what it means to be legally correct are bullshit, and more people are going to continue to die. And, uh, Sean, you've got another uh, reference on this?
3: Yeah. I mean, like, and just to follow up on your point, Yogi, I think, yeah, the problem is for-profit medicine where it's like the idea of generic drugs is, I mean, it seems it is better than the status quo in the United States where you have these insanely expensive drugs that people can't, that people die because they can't afford. So the idea seems good, you know, and it is good to bring in generics to bring the cost down. But the problem is because you're still operating under a for-profit medicine system, people have the idea to cut corners like these Singh brothers and again, kill people Uh, making their money through the generic drugs, and what I wanted to highlight in just a couple minutes here is this story—one of the ones that I heard about from Robert F. Kennedy Jr. that made (laughs) me go insane on vaccines. Because when I heard this, I was like, "There's no way that's fucking true." So the thing is, you might think because the Singh brothers are in jail, they've clearly lost a significant amount of of their fortune. You might be like me and just assume if pharma companies were actively killing people, at least in the United States, they would get punished. People would go to jail. Mm-hmm. You just kind of trust that medicine would be safe because if they were to like go mass murder, you know, maybe in the back of your mind, you think, oh, they could probably get away with it in India or Africa, but they couldn't do it here. Well, they actually did do it here and they did it here very recently. The company Merck, M E R C K, in 2004 issued a sudden recall of Vioxx. Vioxx was um, developed with the FDA, or with the approval of the FDA. It was supposed to be a substitute for aspirin, like an aspirin substitute. Uh, Apparently, Merck had known of potential lethal side effects even before they launched it in 1999. According to RFK Jr., the accountants at Merck determined that it would be cheaper to kill several hundred thousand people and pay the legal costs than it would be to not bring the drug to market. There's an art, There's a write-up of this in uh, in the week by um, in the magazine The Week by Alexander Coburn in 2012. Uh, Viox had a TV ad budget advertising a hundred million dollars per year. Uh, it swiftly became one of Merck's bestsellers, generating over two billion U.S. dollars yearly in revenue. Twenty-five million Americans were eventually prescribed Viox as an aspirin Jeez. substitute, thought to produce fewer complications. However, as uh, Merck's own research uh, before 1999 indicated, it greatly increased the risk of fatal heart attacks and strokes. Uh, the FDA, Vioxx, withdrew it in 2004, right before the FDA uh, discovered—Vioxx withdrew it in 2004, uh, right after they discovered— uh, Merck withdrew Vioxx in 2004 right after they discovered that a top medical journal was about to publish an FDA study that had indicated the aforementioned greatly increasing the risk of heart attacks and strokes, and this FDA study said that it had probably been responsible for at least 55,000 American deaths during the time it was on the market. However, Alexander Coburn goes through a study done by an expert about a rise, a very significant rise. In the amount of heart attack and stroke deaths in the United States that immediately drops off once Vioxx is removed from the market, they come up with the figure 500,000 deaths. Wow. So 10 times what the FDA uh, estimated. Half a million dead Americans. And I had never heard of this story. They murdered half a million Americans, their own fucking accounting and research department told them it'll be cheaper to go kill them. And they were right, because Viox pays a $4.85 billion US dollar fine. Nobody goes to jail. $4.85 billion dollar fine in 2007. Uh, if it was 500,000 deaths, they paid about $9,700 per death. And it was cheaper for them to generate $2 billion in revenue every year, killing half a million Americans. And... I'd never even fucking heard of the story before this month. And that's so insane to me that, yeah, you can, if you are a powerful pharma company, you can just mass murder people right here, oh, yeah. right here in the good old United States. And the government's not going to do shit. The media's not going to tell you what happened. And, uh, you know, don't don't think this shit is just happening in India is what I'm saying to our listeners.
1: Well, it literally isn't. I mean, like, you know, Ranbaxy is based in India, but their drugs are everywhere. And, you know, I want to... You know, I don't want to leave our listeners with the traditional, hey, uh, life sucks, all right, see you next time. But I will say that uh, in the book, they, they talked about a doctor who had been prescribing his patients with generic uh, medication, and when he looked at the links between the pharmaceuticals that were making it and some of the side effects that his patients were dealing with, he was then switching to name brand uh, products. And the book, once again, uh, to last mention, mentioned, hit... Uh, a Bottle of Lies, The Inside Story of Generic Drug Boom by Katherine Ebon. I, I really liked it a lot. I think uh, if you want to know more about everything we've talked about, it's a very, very thorough look at the FDA and rambaxi, at the problems that have had. But if you are taking medication and you are taking the generic pharmaceutical, uh, look into how it's made. Uh, mm-hmm. Ask your doctor, hey, has this uh, come from a factory that has dealt with the FDA saying that this medicine may kill me? And, you know... From the book, if the doctor goes, oh, okay, uh, just take the fucking regular stuff at the same milligrams, that also is not necessarily recommended because the name brand pharmaceuticals are potentially so much stronger than the generic. If you're getting 30 milligrams of a generic uh, you know, antidepressant or an SSRI or something, and you go to a name brand, it might not be suitable for your body. So, unfortunately, you have to take more steps in finding what will work for you and like everything it's not fun but it is a part of the work to make sure that you don't kill yourself accidentally or uh, em- uh, enable the killing of other people for your comfort
3: yeah ask your doctor if your generic drugs are listed as approved generics on the clinton foundation's <laughs> website and if so immediately flush them down the toilet
0: Well, um, i was just going to say if you if you're ssra if you take your SSRI and your, your dick still works, um, you should be asking some questions. <laughs> <laughs>
3: well. Oh, a depressing ending to the Merck story. Guess which company was a client of Kamala Harris's lawyer husband? That's right, Merck. No, oh, no. So the very possible future vice president of the United States, her husband as an attorney represented Merck, the company that killed half a million Americans. So you can definitely expect a big crackdown coming in their future. But lastly, to close out this episode, one thing I'm curious about, I, I realized we didn't say their net worth up front. The Singh brothers, they peaked with about a $2.5 billion U.S. dollar net worth uh, in, like, I think the mid or late 2000s, or maybe in the 2010s, about billion net wor- $2.5 net worth—or $2.5 net worth— but of course they, you know, are in jail and have serious <laughs> legal costs. So you have to imagine that was significantly depleted. But you mentioned offshore money, Yogi. So I guess I'm just wondering, do you think they've been able to squirrel squirrel some of that out? Maybe they still have some funds hidden from prosecutors? Or what do you think their finances are looking like? And what do you think their future is looking like today?
1: I can't confirm if they if they did squirrel out some money, but... You know, Manjit Singh and Aniljit Singh, their uncles on their deceased father's side, still run companies, and if you look them up and their kids, they are like, we're rich, and we fucking love it, and our kids aren't spoiled, and we're awesome. But, you know, when Malvinder and Shivinder had to sell their homes to pay for some of these debts, anuljit their youngest uncle on their dad's side, was the one that would buy the house. So, in the long run of things, Mohan Singh bequeathed them... Uh, Ranbaxy but the Singh family is gonna have money for generations to come and yeah. Mulvinder and Shivinder might be besmirched in the I mean but they're really not like I mean like you know before this episode I got no fucking idea that the drug supply to African uh, people that have AIDS are fucking bullshit you know what mm. I mean like I remember like years ago hearing the conspiracy that like in Africa they believe that they have a cure for AIDS in the United States and they're not giving it to Africans right and you know you hear that and you're like I don't know I mean I don't know and then you're like Matt Johnson is still alive and <laughs> uh you know like how you know, like well what is the what's the math on that you know what
3: I mean right coincidence sure Yogi. maybe Yogi can I interest you in a video by RFK no Yogi? no
1: <laughs> 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 so listen all I'm trying to get across here is that I don't know exactly how much money they they funneled away, but these aren't just pharmaceutical giants. These are fucking mafia Don thugs. A fucking doctor said no to them, and he said, I'm going to make a hundred cops show up where you fucking work and bring in a fucking, you know, riot patrol shit. You, you Nobody in their right mind that does shit like that is going to die anytime soon by one visit to the jail. Fuck, Martha Stewart's been to jail, all right? Malvinder and Shivinder Singh, even if they didn't hide money away, they're going to be fine. And by Mohan Singh, their original patriarch is looked at as like a fucking savior. Because hmm. although their drugs were uh, you know, under regulation and, and they killed people... To many people, including myself, before I did the research on this episode, I thought, you know, generic medication from Indian pharmaceutical companies were something that were, was saving the world. Like, you know, they yeah, they're reverse engineering it and and uh, choosing to undercut the uh, big pharma markets, but fuck big pharma, this company's doing great shit. Ch- but it's like, anyone making this much profit is fucking someone over, and if it's not you, it's somebody next to you. And in this case, it wasn't me, but... Uh, I'm not convinced that we've heard the last of Malvinder and Shivinder Singh I mean like they got so much fucking family drama at one point Shivinder would sue Malvinder and he'd be like he threatened me he broke some buttons on my jacket when they (laughs) were better friends they would FaceTime they would force their wives to FaceTime each other so that they could coordinate their fucking outfits some reports say that they would FaceTime to make sure they weren't wearing the same things but you look at fucking every photo of these fucking chooches they're always wearing the same fucking turbans and suits so these, the Singh family are parasitic leeches of the pharmaceutical industry, and you know no industry is pure in this day and age. But the quality and the standards of fucking medical goods needs to be a fucking plus, because as that deteriorates, it's not just the lives of one another; it's the rest of humanity. It, there is no end in sight that's positive when oh yeah medicine doesn't fucking work now what Hmm. (laughs) we're in the fucking pandemic right now like you what medicine doesn't work you know if Randbaxy is the one that is like we crack the code on the fucking coronavirus vaccine i'm not taking it and then now i'm anti-fax you know now i'm watching rfk videos for fucking three hours
3: yeah, I mean, it's a big problem, I think, and that's the real problem, like I said, with for-profit medicine, is that in a lot of cases, it is just profitable. You can make good money killing people or getting people sick or getting people addicted They're, or, or, you know, watering down drugs that people need to save their lives and killing them that way. There's a lot of different ways you can just make money killing people when it comes to medicine.
1: But that is kind of the line, though. If you're willing to profit off people's deaths, you'll probably be financially okay for the rest of your life.
3: Mm-hmm. Did you know that uh, one of the Singh brothers was actually able to sneak some money out when the other Singh brother came in and distracted the referee? <laughs> <laughs> and then the original Singh brother did a low blow to the regulators. and um, He won the match, but the audience was booing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, they're always boo- booing. Come on, they're the heels in the fucking wrestling world, all right? You think fucking wrestling fans love the Singh brothers? Boy, I'd love if the WWE Sing brothers took a turn and they always showed up with, like, stethoscopes and, like, every fucking match is them being like, what? No, my AIDS vaccine was good and was re- uh, approved by the FDA. Boo! Stone Cold Steve Austin rolls in and is like, motherfucker, you think not giving medicine to ki- people that have AIDS? Uh, it's more Mr. T, but uh, you get the fucking point.
3: Yeah, that would be that would be one of the great heel turns in the WWE, though, is another wrestler gets AIDS, and the Singh brothers <laughs> give him fake medication, and then they write the his death into the CEOs. show.
0: <laughs> the heel it's character like, is a pharma CEO. Yeah. Uh, fucking red. they They're
3: rapy. Indian. They know what they're talking about. They're doctors, all of them. If you uh, continue on, uh, I will add uh, the last piece
1: about Honey and Barry Sherman. I know we teased it a while ago, but... You know how shit works on Grubstakers. We let you get what you get. You don't fucking tell us what to do. Um, But uh, thank you for joining us. Once again, we appreciate your patronage, and uh, we really appreciate you listening to our show. This episode was very dense, and we'll have all of our sources posted on our website, grubstakers.net, so please check that out if you want to see all of the sources we use for the episode. Uh, And with that, this has been Grubstakers.
0: I'm Yogi Paywall
3: i uh, Sean P. McCarthy. Thanks to our patrons for listening and for your support.
0: I'm Steve Jeffries. Bye, everyone. Right.
3: Good night. Bye.
1: Cool. Stop your quarters. Hey, thanks for sticking around and staying to the end of the episode. This part is from our source that has been heavily edited and redacted to protect identity. Um... It is a look into Honey and Barry Sherman's murders as well as some more corruption within the generic pharmaceutical industry. So uh, thanks and uh, enjoy.
2: Here's the story in a nutshell. I work, my boss has been working in the industry and he knows a long time right hand man. Gotcha. And I think he's actually the trustee of the estate um, or lead trustee of the estate. But, uh... As a result, I know quite a bit, and it disgusts me, and I want people to know. So with that, there's sort of two sorts of sides of the story that I can tell you. I can tell you the Barry Sherman-specific stuff, but then there's stuff regarding the pharmaceutical industry and corruption there in general that right. I think you might be interested in. So you tell me how you want to go. Yeah.
1: Let's uh, do <laughs> the Barry and Honey Sherman stuff first, and then we'll go into the pharmaceutical stuff. Let's start with
2: the juice who killed Barry Sherman. Very surprisingly, it wasn't Big Pharma. Really? Big Pharma pharma, is not, pharma doesn't do killing, just not. And the reason I can say that with confidence, besides the fact there's no other precedent of it ever happening, right. is if he was ever going to be killed for something, it would have been in 2013 or 2014 when he did a deal, an illegal deal, with Bristol Myers, Squibb, to um, basically take a pay for delay on what was then their leading drug. It was called Plavix or Clopidogrel. Gotcha. Um, and allegedly, he took a billion dollar payoff to basically not challenge a patent. And then the day the patent in question expired, he nonetheless launched a billion dollars of product worldwide. And kind of, Crystal couldn't do anything about it because. You know what were they going to do? We paid so much. We paid you off to stay off the market, but he broke the cardinal rule of the industry. Um, with, so if anything was going to get him laughed, it would have been that, and it didn't happen. Right. So what actually got him killed? And again, this is all through. So take it with a grain of salt. But I heard is Barry Sherman allegedly. You know, when you're a billionaire and you have that much money and power, the obsession is it money. It's power, right? And he liked to apparently do shady deals in his office at night with some less than savory characters from the underworld. I'm not saying, I not I, you know, I'd never heard anything of him ordering assassinations or shit like that. Not to say it did or didn't happen, but definitely he played in a bunch of call it dubious finance, construction financing job with the type of character that you would associate with those types of projects. And apparently what did him in is there was a project, a big uh, development building, I think Lauren Young in Toronto, that it was a Mizrahi development project. And I think, I believe it was had a $50 million mortgage on it and the property fell into trouble. And the mob thought it was going to get the property basically, well, not for nothing, for $50 million bucks, right, but it was worth several hundred, if not a billion bucks. Um, and Barry Sherman, thinking he was untouchable and could get a good deal, basically took out the mob's loan. Um, except for the mob didn't like that very much, and that's why... Apparently, he was locked, and it explained, A, why it was a professional job, and right. why they'll never actually find the killers themselves, and, two, why the wife was killed. Because it was a big farm, thing. there's no reason to lock
1: honey. Right, right. I remember reading during our research that at the funeral, there were several people in lawsuits with Barry and Honey Sherman at that time at the funeral as well. So he had a bunch of people that were out to get him, but none of them seemed to be inclined to murder him. So the fact that it was a professional hit job through some construction bullshit seems to make sense.
2: Yeah, and like, the cousin, like, yeah, the cousin's fucking crazy, but the cousin's not smart enough to have pulled that off, I don't think. Right, he, he,
1: in the documentary, says how he would have killed it, which is like the last fucking thing you would do if you pulled that shit off, you know?
2: Yeah, and as for the stuff about Barry hating honey. I'm not, I haven't heard things one way or the other. The one thing I can say is I've met both Barry and Honey Sherman. The Sherman were the leading lumber in that community until their death. So the interesting thing about the Sherman family is Barry Sherman, whatever you want to say about him, good or bad, was unquestionably a genius. Um, And, you know, for all of the shady shit he did, you know, you have to look at, he did hugely advanced the world of generic pharmaceuticals. Definitely. Um, none of his children or wife possessed a shred of his intellect. His <laughs> wife is a totally crude, you know, rich man's wife. Right. And the daughters were brainless. Like, his daughters may have been the stupidest person I've <laughs> in my life and i saying something.
1: No, a lot of billionaires' kids are pretty pretty big duds, so that makes sense.
2: And he himself was a weird dude. Like, he was a workaholic. I had a We, the Shermans were members of that club. And I remember every, I don't think I ever had a conversation with Barry Sherman, but I saw him every single day in the clubhouse, in the, at the table. And, like, I don't think he would be in his ski gear, but I don't think he ever actually left, and he would just be working there non-stop. And I mention it because my guy, who was the most affable guy in the world and could probably strike up a friendly conversation with a brick wall, once tried to approach him and strike up a conversation. Like, even he couldn't do it. The guy oh, was, wow. if you weren't talking about pharmaceuticals or business or science, you meant nothing to him. So I yeah. can see what he was a contentious family like. Allegedly, the son, Jonathan, who, uh, the oldest son, had a very contentious relationship with him. He, I think, spent a week working at Albitex and then basically quit or was fired. I'm not quite sure, but either way, he couldn't cut it. Sure. And he was incredibly acrimonious towards he's the guy I mentioned before, um, saying that basically he, you know, stole my father from us. And when, uh, the, when Apotec, or when he died and Apotex was kind of in limbo for a lot of reasons I'll get into. Um, Jack K. eventually, initially stepped in to run it, but the Sherman on behalf of the kids. But Jonathan Sherman asserted, fuck you Jack, I'm taking control of the company, but he knows fuck all. And Apotex had a bajillion problems to deal with, Um, you know, irrespective of who was running it. So, you're almost watching a Chernobyl in real time within our industry. Yeah. Um, it's, and, and to the point of your, your point about him being litigious, Sherman was known as the guy that would spend two and a half million bucks in court to avoid paying you a hundred thousand bucks, like it was about winning for him. Right. Right. And so all of Appleton's you mentioned had hundreds if not thousands of lawsuits against it. And what was really propping it up at the end of the day. Was the strength of Barry Sherman's character and the fear of Barry Sherman, a litigator? Um, and the second he went, Apothex being the clusterfuck that it is, every all the barbarians came to the gate, and it's still the back process is still playing out.
1: That makes um, sense.
2: So let's see. So we've covered kids and honey. Uh, we've covered the mafia killing. We've covered play that Kinkle, but. That- in terms of general shady shit he's done, like you covered the stuff that's in the public domain. Right. But the thing that's about the pharmaceutical industry, and it seems like you've done a bit of research into the rebates or the pricing system in Canada, or at least the retail pricing system where it's here as a percentage of the brand. The way that it works is such that what the brand ultimately loses is usually a lot more. Then the generics stand to gain and so that creates incentive to you know settle and do effectively pay for delay deals that keep generics off the market but would drive down medicine costs and systems at the expense of everyone making more money on the aggregate and that happens literally like that's not something that happens there, there's obviously the big chases like Pittsburgh, I mentioned, but right. so that happens on a micro level, on a daily basis. Interesting. And I mean, Barry Sherman was the king of it, but that's pervades throughout the
1: industry. Right, right. Because basically, you're saying that like the the process of making or funding the generics isn't nearly as uh, profitable or as much competition, but it's the brand uh, name losing the recognition of being the brand that hurts them the most, huh? Yeah. So I'll
2: lose, So I'll give you an illustrative example. Let's say, uh, take. Lipitor, the heart, the heart medicine, or call uh, uh, cholesterol medicine. Right. But the brand sell sold, sold for ten dollars a pill. The way that the pricing works in Canada, and it's not dissimilar in other countries. U.S. is its own uh, ball game, but sure. Canada and other countries are quite similar in this regard. If there's one generic on the market, automatically set it's seventy five percent of the brand price. The second, there's a second generic the price falls to 50% of the brand price. And the second is a third generic or more, it falls to 25% of the brand price. And right. for some of the really, really high volume um, drugs with lots of generic, they can fall as low as 8%. Huh. And then on top of that, and this isn't so much the pharma companies fault as it is the pharmacies and benefits managers being corrupt, when there's three generics, and the price for all of them is set by the government, if you're the pharmacy, you don't have an incentive to dispense one generic over another. So how do you choose which one to do? Basically, whoever pays you the most rebate under the table. And so for the really high commodity stuff, you know, let's say you're getting reimbursed 25% of the brand price. Of that 25%, you might be kicking back as much as 20%, leaving you with 5% to the pharmacy for a really high volume thing. So if the brand is getting $10 bucks a pill on a net basis, you might be getting 50, 50 cents rather.
1: Right, right.
2: And so, and that applies to all the generics. And so that creates incentive for everyone to come together and say, hey, You don't want to lose your 10 bucks and all of your volume, and you don't want to get 50 cents a pill, so how about you all stay off the market? We'll continue selling it at 10 bucks a pill, and we'll pay you each two bucks a pill under the table.
1: Yeah, it's just a straight racket. It's just fucking corruption.
2: Multiply by hundreds of drugs across dozens of countries, and welcome to the wonderful world of big generic pharma.
1: Right, right, right. Interesting. So, go on. No, 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 by all
2: means, that's the question.
1: Well, so we, you know, one of the questions I have is, is do you have any uh, public sources for any of these claims that we, we could uh, look at, or is this all...
2: Still- yeah, so here's the best one I can give you. There's a company called AA... So there's a company called AA Pharma that is a known affiliate and subsidiary of Avotex. Uh-huh. And what AA Pharma specializes in doing is effectively buying up old... Um, legacy brands, like brands that have been off-patent for a while, which they have their own generic for or can develop their own generic for. Then they find all of the existing generics and do a deal with them to keep them off the market. And then they pull the original reference brand off the market. And the thing is, to register a generic, you have to do it as a test against the original brand. And so if there's no brand sample to do it against, you can't register a new generic. So AA Pharma has something like, I don't know, 50 or so molecules. I actually did a workup on it a couple years ago um, just to see if there was anything we should go after. Basically, all of these products, you can't, you can prove it without true what's going on. So you can look at the fact that there are no longer any competition for any of these molecules and that the brands have been pulled off the market. And if you go to the what's called NOC database, which is the Health Canada database of um, any drug registration. Mm -hmm. You can see for any of these molecules that it's not like there didn't used to be generics for this product. So there were generic registrations, maybe by as many as four or five companies, but at some point in time, all of them, except for Appatech, stopped selling. Isn't that interesting? Right. Um, The rebate system uh, that I mentioned, you can... There actually was a whistleblower report in Canada last year about rebates in Canada, so there's a precedent for what I'm saying. It wasn't as in-depth, nor did it explain the mechanics quite as well, but rebates in Canada have been a – what was I going to say? A – it's, what's the word? The secret that everyone knows. The world's sure. workshop. Right,
1: right. A quick question I had for you. So, like, when the news story comes out that, you know, Barry and Honey Sherman have been murdered, you know, and the the cops are looking into it, was everything you're saying people started figuring out and talking, or were some people in shock? Like, what was the reaction? So most Well, the, the thing is, the
2: Shermans were really good at stealing billions of dollars from the system and then donating billions back. To whitewash their names. So, um, you know, if you cite that, they were these great philanthropists and supporters of everything and everyone in everyone's mind. And what's they were known as the people that you went to whenever you had a problem and needed money desperately because they always said yes. Ah, uh, yeah. That um, makes sense. So there was certainly a lot of shock. There was a lot of sadness. And with, with the exception of the people who knew the industry and knew his reputation well, Um, by and large, it was considered, you know, the death of this great philanthropist type.
1: Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. That would be how most people... That's what billionaires are going to do it. Right, exactly, yeah. And and the key word there is whitewashing your name to make it seem like you're such a great altruistic philanthropist and not the cunning uh, uh, cutthroat businessman you are.
2: Oh yeah, one other thing on Apotex you might want to know, and I'm not sure he's directly responsible for it, but he definitely knew. So there was a scandal a couple of years ago where the CEO or deputy CEO of Apotex, a guy by the name of Jeremy Jayside, was abruptly fired from his job because it emerged that his girlfriend slash mistress, Teppa, was illegally being in trade secret. Oh really? So that was public knowledge. That was only half the story though. The other half of the story, is, and with all the public knowledge, is that Apatex ran into FDA issues with one of the really big production plants in India. Um, what wasn't reported is that that plant is eventually, or at least if they do their jobs honestly, if regulators do their jobs honestly, going to need to be knocked down altogether because Jeremy Day's eyes are sort of backhanded from the Indian construction companies that allowed them to use a non-GMP spec type of concrete or chemical in the concrete so oh, like really? it's basically akin to building a factory with asbestos
1: yeah in right the right wow
2: yeah so i don't know if sherman authorized that but he definitely empowered data by virtue and he definitely knew about it
1: right of course And I know about some of the generic manufacturing that goes on in India, because the the Indian government claimed that uh, they're at crisis, and there's that law that says that if a country's at crisis, they can, you know, manufacture generics. And so, you know, and they've tried to shut it down, but essentially if they did, it would kill millions of Africans, and so nobody wants to get their hands... They, no one wants their blood on their hands when it comes to the, the death of Africans, so it, it's a whole fucking legal gray area because technically...
2: Well, they don't actually care about Africans' die. They just don't want to look like they're responsible.
1: For right, it. precisely, precisely.